0: Welcome to Conversations in Complexity. Today I am thoroughly delighted to welcome Dr. Jeff Myers as our guest. Jeff is the uh, head of the Division of Palliative Care at the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. He also holds the distinction of being the W. Gifford Jones Professor in Pain and Palliative Care and is the site lead for palliative care at Bridgepoint in the Sinai Health System. Good morning and welcome, Jeff. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me. So I was reviewing your background and I noted that, uh, so one of the ways i like to start is to tell me how you got into medicine and particularly into your field of palliative care. But you started out with a degree in zoology I at did. the University of Calgary. Did you have like an aspiration to be an ornithologist or was it small bugs or just tell small me about bugs, your s- yes, small bugs. Yes. Okay. It's natural transition to palliative care. Uh, that's right. That's bugs. right.
1: Uh, do you know, there was not a specific pre-medicine uh, degree program? so science, I was at the University of Calgary, and there were a number of different science uh, type majors, and zoology was the one that had the closest thing to anatomy, I would say. Excellent. Um, and so that was the reason for the undergraduate. And I stayed in Calgary for medical school. During medical school, there really wasn't at that time uh, palliative care experiences. But I would say that that when I walked into the emergency room or the OR or medicine floors, it really just didn't click for me. I did an elective at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver on HIV and AIDS in the palliative care unit there. And as soon as I walked onto the floor, uh, the palliative care unit, I knew that that was the the unit for me. Uh, The light bulb went on and it stayed on ever since.
0: Excellent. I note you also went to Los Angeles for a couple of years to do a master's degree in medical education. What motivated that? What did you learn?
1: So after I finished uh, undergraduate in Calgary, I moved to Toronto and did my residency here at the Wellesley, when the Wellesley yeah. used to be a place, and uh, it was a fantastic place to to really solidify my uh, medicine knowledge. It was not through any effort or attempt on my own, but uh, very much landed on my lap an opportunity to run two HIV AIDS hospices in Los Angeles. Mm. I lived there for five years, uh, sorry, 10 years in total. The first five years uh, was running these two hospices and then they closed down. And so I ran Cedar sinai Hospital's home hospice program for five years after that. While I was in Los Angeles, I decided I wanted to teach, decided I wanted to teach well. Uh, and so I did the master's at, uh, in medical education at University of Southern California which was a fantastic program. I was able to do it while I was working. And at the time, UCLA and USC quite short-sightedly closed their palliative care programs. So there weren't any
0: opportunities for academic palliative care in Los Angeles, and that's what brought me back to Toronto. Well, I guess because California is the center of eternity and wellness that, uh, you know, they were de- denying that possibility. I note also while you were there, you won quite an important award. You won Harvey Milk Award for community work. Can you tell us about that? That sure. must have been an outstanding uh, achievement for you. It was uh, one of my m- most proud moments, actually, yeah. I would say, professionally in
1: that um the uh, the Harvey Milk Award was uh, given to an individual throughout the city in the city who sort of is of great service in in uh, in honor of and the legacy of, of Harvey Milk himself. Um, it, so what that meant was being in the Pride Parade, which in Los Angeles is a is a fairly massive ordeal. And so that was it was quite fun and and quite uh, an official and formal presentation of the award as well. It was quite
0: an honor. So I'm a celebrity of sorts, I guess, for that time. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was very humbling. very humbling. humbling. So then you came to Toronto and started working at Sunnybrook, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, So we were companions at Sunnybrook. So tell me where you see the challenges in palliative care. Looking at our system now, we've kind of uh, focused on the complexities of modern health systems and how they're trying to reconfigure their services, their care, their research, and their education to face the challenges of 21st century medicine. Mm
1: So I think it's fascinating what's happening to palliative care over the last five years in particular. So 2010, there was a real watershed moment or a real fork in the road moment for palliative care in that um, it was the year that the TEML study was published, which um, was in the New England Journal of Medicine and really demonstrated for the first time that not only does palliative care not shorten life, but in fact actually for many populations can lengthen uh, survival and in this one particular study it was more so the benefit on on survival duration for early palliative care was uh, more so than one of the chemotherapy agents that we give to to people with lung cancer so it was it was something that palliative care clinicians knew all along in that when people have quality palliative care they not only proven many so many different indicators and metrics but they thrive actually So we now had the data for that, and that's really changed palliative care. The face of palliative care and made it much more relevant. Study after study, subsequent to the TEML study, has shown in multiple populations the benefits of palliative care and early palliative care, even from the time of diagnosis of serious illness. Mm -hmm. So what had historically been... Palliative care had historically really been for folks with cancer and particularly saved for end of life and um, over the a couple of years stretch we there was a ton of of evidence that began to surface around the role for palliative care much earlier, um, much earlier in the course of illness and for many illnesses. Um, I would say that uh, the where we stand today in terms of palliative care is to whom are we relevant any person that has a serious illness and by that I mean incurable and progressive illness something that's going to advance over time that really opens things quite wide up for whom palliative care is relevant and that includes frailty dementia it includes um, uh, neurodegenerative diseases congestive heart failure COPD chronic kidney disease so for you know, folks that sort of flew under the radar taking care of cancer patients for many years. Um, it's it's really opened up our uh, our skill set, our, our expertise for whom we are relevant, and it's made a much greater complexity around how we're actually going to provide that care.
0: Yeah, no, this is music to my ears because I've long seen this convergent need before the patient population that I'm particularly interested, which is multimorbid, usually older, they don't have one diagnosis per se. And, uh, so two things I've argued for years that all care should be palliative care because palliative care is not just a series of services. It's an ethos. It's a yes. way of thinking about what matters to patients, their families and what matters to medicine. So I often, when my, my mother actually passed away at the Sunnybrook palliative care unit and received exemplary care Uh, while she was on the ward we won't speak about that but I remember coming away saying all care should be palliative care because it actually instantiates the ethos of care so it and it's small things it's about how you speak how you look how you think about the person so I think this convergence is just outstanding but you're right so some of the challenges are how are we going to organize these services and then how do we teach them any thoughts about how you're going to move this agenda forward well
1: first i uh, just to reflect on some of the things that you're saying about what palliative care is and it absolutely is an ethos it absolutely is a philosophy And I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but amongst palliative care clinicians, we often say to ourselves, you know, it's just good care. What we're providing is just good care. Um, There's certainly a science um, and important evidence around some of the complex symptom management. And there is an expertise around communication skills that I would say most, uh, if not all, palliative care clinicians tend to have. But the vast majority of work that we do is just good care. The good news with that, then, is that if we have most or all clinicians providing just good care, then The palliative care that is provided by palliative care specialists can really focus on those that have complex needs, patients and families that have complex needs. Right now, as it is, there's just no way to meet the needs um, of a system uh, of patients. And what I mean by that is, we think of all of the patients with the Sinai health system that have a serious illness. um, That's a tremendous number of people. If we're making sure that all of our cardiology teams, neurology teams, oncology teams, primary care teams as well, are providing basic core palliative care that they actually already are doing but call it that and improve some of the skills around that and then identify those patients that have much greater complexity around some of their symptoms some of their uh, decision-making issues psychosocial issues those folks would be probably be best for palliative care specialists whereas teams that are currently and providing um, excellent disease focused and palliative care can actually do so even better
0: what do you think the elements and the kind of skill set that is required for these teams? So the other thing we learned in our research was that team-based care was required for very complex patients. Many people push back against that model because they say, oh, that's a, that's a Cadillac. You know, we can't afford that. And I keep arguing back, we can't afford not to. Um, who do you think should be part of the team? So it's an interesting question. I was looking at some of the, the original
1: studies from the hospice in the UK that was uh, opened by Cicely Saunders yeah. in the 70s and Belfort who's one of the... the pioneers of palliative care in Canada had spent some time there and what was what i learned was that the first few days of a patient's admission to their to their hospice in the UK they actually made no changes to their regimen to their approach to their treatment plan and what they did was just pay attention to assessing physical psychological emotional psychosocial and spiritual needs and just assess them that alone Um, resulted in a dramatic improvement in people's quality of their life. Just the fact that we're actually just paying attention to these things. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is that we need to be utilizing our interprofessional team members because there are folks that are highly trained in being able to assess psychosocial needs, spiritual needs, um, social needs as well. These are fundamental and core to patients and families uh, in terms of their function, in terms of their resilience, in terms of their ability to thrive. And I would say that that's actually what palliative care is, is, is ensuring that we're able to maximize and optimize function and meet people's goals. So to kind of summarize, I think, you know, the the role for interprofessional team members is, is massive. I think that we are Underutilizing uh, the bio, the sort of the humanistic model of our primary care clinicians and colleagues, palliative care. The majority of them in Canada are family physicians by training, and I think what's really important about that is that. When you're focused, when you're focus your training on a specific disease or a specific organ, it's, it's very difficult, I think, to maintain that sort of humanistic approach and exist within a complexity around a patient and the ambiguity yeah. around a, a patient. And we're sort of trained to do that. And so I would say that, that primary care is an underutilized resource in terms of meeting the palliative care needs of a population. So those two pieces of the puzzle in terms of the team members are, are critically important
0: i'd say about 15 years ago i transcended a disease based approach and started to move along these lines about you know becoming i guess what they'd call now patient centered but we called it goal oriented care yes. recognizing that there is also silences. So clinicians had goals that were very clinically and biomedically focused. Caregivers had goals and patients had goals. But in one of our studies, none of them shared their goals. So they were all going in different directions. And when I articulate the kind of model or vision of care that I think is required for these patients, uh, some of my medical colleagues would say, well, that's not medicine, that's social work. And I go, But no, you need to be a good clinician to integrate because These people have symptoms, and they have uh, pain, and some of them have fluid management issues that you need to be able to manage those. So it's an and both, not an either or. So in in your view, both as an educator and a clinician, and I know you've been involved in policy work, where do you see the key barriers and what levers need to be put in place to sort of move towards what I think is the uh, vision for care in the 21st century? Uh, That's a
1: good question. It's a a tricky one. Can I start with a direct care, frontline? and it picks up on your points around the word goals. Um, goals of care discussions is is this entity that has uh, taken on a life of its own in the last five years in terms of what it is and where what it does. Where I'd like to see the, the direction go is, is coming back to your point on the word goals. Goals of care discussions is something that's really actually quite new in, in the literature, in the healthcare literature in the last sort of five, ten years. Uh, and it's not clearly defined. There's not consensus on what a goals of care discussion is, but people think that they have a sense of what it is. When palliative care clinicians, and I would say family physicians as well, when we're having a goals of care discussion, what we do not have in our back pocket is dialysis or mechanical ventilation or other kinds of treatments that we would potentially be offering. And so for us, our orientation to the word goals is the person, that, what are your goals? right? What, what are the goals for your care? Uh, what that does when I assess a patient and assess what their goals are, that tells me where they think they are in this illness trajectory. And, and if they're unreasonable, unrealistic, and weigh out their goals, then that's a, that's a place to continue the conversation and say, okay, well, tell me why that, that that's important to you. When I listen to our colleagues within the acute care centers, um, and, and in particular critical care, use the phrase goals of care discussion, it is with a very treatment oriented uh, mindset or approach one's not better than the other a person sort a person centered or a person oriented approach uh, versus a treatment centered or, or treatment oriented approach but i can't help but wonder if we're actually more likely to get to decisions if we're actually focusing on a person's goals uh, and a person oriented approach to goals or care discussions i think when we come at people with patients and families with information about treatments without a context and without a picture of what the outcome is, it's very difficult for them to make decisions. And and so if there was one lever or one change that I could make, it would be that goals of care discussions um, aren't equated with code status, aren't equated with with uh, only uh, sort of life-sustaining therapy within the acute care context, and that goals of care discussions would be really person-centered and percus- person-focused in that we're determining what a person's goals are for their care.
0: Yeah. What you've said is really quite profound and really illustrates two things that I think in complexity we need to recognize. One is patients and families and clinicians often need the conversation is critical because as I like to say, patients don't come with their goals of care written on their forehead. That's right. Sometimes they think that we know as the clinician treating them and they haven't actually you know, that question about where they are in the disease trajectory is so vital because One of the things we learned over the years with our model is that magical thinking so the caregiver thinks, you know, they've they've been in line at the grocery store and they've picked up the magazine that says 10 life-saving treatments your doctor either doesn't know about or won't tell you about. So they're harboring still, and, and hope is such a huge motivator in human life that there's something out there that's going to take away this dreadful situation, that all of the multimorbidity and the end-stage trajectories are going to go away. And clinicians are action-oriented, and we're going to fix this. And to get to that space where people act actually recognize that we have to think about this in a different way, but that doesn't mean abandonment. It actually means a transition into something that's really focused on who you are as a person within your context and a family and who I am as a clinician and what we can do together. That to me, it's a big challenge and a big change because the other issue, and just to, so we kind of come to a close, is how do we construct curricula that get us there and how do we configure services that value the time it takes to get there and for me as a researcher I'm interested in measurements Mm -hmm. and so we have to rethink and reconceptualize our measurements because if we're going to be outcome driven and all of our resources are going to go to these outcomes if we're driving to the wrong place we're never going to get there so so, other big questions. I think that goal-concordant care would
1: be the the outcome, uh, and figuring that out in terms of specific indicators around that would be ideal, right? I think that's where we need to be moving towards. Um, and I think it actually, if we're trying to be person-centered in how goals are actually defined, then to an extent, um, whether or not we achieved goal-concordant care needs to be assessed by the person, and uh, i.e. the patient and their family as well. So that you know, how to figuring out how to measure is is certainly a, a a big challenge, but I would say that the theme or the the, the main approach needs to be goal-concordant care. How do we teach this? is Is tricky, and I've sat with this one, Russ, for quite some time because ideally, ideally, what we what we would want our learners to be is modeled for them. And so it is finding a cohort, um, identifying a cohort of teachers of uh, of faculty who actually embrace this philosophy, this mindset, who are able to live in ambiguity, who uh, have the ability to think about treatments and the person at the same time, so that we can model for our learners um, exactly what we're talking about. It's very difficult to describe the goals of care discussions, a person-centered approach. Um, it's much easier when um, when it's modeled for uh, for uh, learners. And what I would say is that when I s- first realized that there was sort of maybe these. Um, differing approaches or orientations towards the word goals. I went back to our curriculum, our palliative medicine curriculum, and I realized that we actually don't have a session on goals of care discussions. That's not part of the actual curriculum. And I looked over, and it, it, I looked over the curriculum for the year, and it really is something that evolves in our learners because they're, they're, they have it modeled for them. They're getting some feedback on it throughout the year. They're testing things out. It's this skill that very organically develops and evolves over time but it's because they're being modeled at constantly. So I think that's one of the most important keys for how we empower our learners.
0: Fabulous. Jeff, this has been an enriching and really important conversation. I am so glad you are at Sinai Health System and here at Bridgepoint as a colleague. I completely endorse the goals of your endeavor (laughs) and look forward to uh, further collaborations. Thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with me.
1: Thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: Great.